the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. My conversation today is with three people, Dr. David Tranter, Lori Carson, and Tom Boland. Together, they're the authors of the book, The Third Path, a relationship-based approach to student well-being and achievement. They all have different lived experience. David is an associate professor at Lakehead University in the Department of Social Work, Lori started in social work, but moved to teaching special education, and Tom's an elementary school teacher and professional learning consultant. Together, they wrote a book and strategy guides for what they call The Third Path that examines student well-being and its relationship to achievement and later life success. Although they do get into a lot of the information, what I think sets this resource apart is the focus on practical application of how to make it come alive in classrooms. And that's really evidenced by those guides. Children who have experienced trauma, as we know, who have behavior concerns, or who have difficulty regulating are big concerns for teachers. I think you're going to gain some practical insight in how you might improve your impact with these students in our interview. If you like what you're hearing, connect with Intersection Education. You can go to our website, intersectioneducation.com. Follow us on Twitter at Intersection Ed, or we're even on Facebook. We really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Here's my conversation with Dr. David Tranter, Lori Carson, and Tom Boland. All right. Well, thank you so much, David, Tom, and Lori, for joining me today. Let's get right into the heart of what you're talking about with the third path. Um, David, many people believe that the reason that schools exist, the reason that we created them was really to work and focus on academic skills. Now, you're challenging that notion that we should solely focus on academics. Can you can you tell me why it is you think it's not just about academics and what else you think it might be about? What, what, what should we should be doing in schools? Uh, yeah. Okay. So there's a there's a bunch of things. I mean, one of the things that we talk about quite a bit in our book, and it's in the first chapter, is... Um, some of these longitudinal studies that have looked at what set, sets kids up for success. And um, one of the surprises, although it may not be a surprise to everyone, is that um, uh, uh, when you look at longitudinal studies, these are big studies that have been uh, that followed students over 30 years. And they've looked at correlates between um, things in childhood and in adolescence and life satisfaction, fulfillment and success, let's say at age 35. Um, Studies like the famous New Zealand Dunedin study found that um, academic success did not correlate with adult success at all. In fact, it was the worst correlation. And so a purely academic orientation to life sets kids up for later success in adulthood. If we define it as material success, 
But if we look at things like life satisfaction uh, and fulfillment, <clears throat> things really it's the social emotional aspects that are the strongest correlates of uh, adult success. There's a couple of more quick reasons, though, that I'd like to just highlight that um, that probably will be no surprise to people. The other thing is that um, it's it's more practical and kind of proximal that that kids are at school every day. So if we want to help kids, especially those kids who are at risk, then the best place we can go to find those kids, apart from their home, is in schools. And so academics is important. Uh, and, and the three of us are big proponents of achievement and academics. But if we really want to help kids in all other aspects of, of their lives, we've got to look at supporting them where they are in that school. Finally, um, you know, all of the emerging, emerging research, there's all kinds of really good reports uh, coming out these days. I look at a report. There's a great report from the um, in the United States from the Learning Policy Institute called Educating the Whole Child, Improving School Climate to Support Student Success, which is a free PDF you can get online. These big meta-analyses of what constitutes academic success have all found the same thing, which is that social-emotional success and academic success are two sides of the same coin. You can't have academic success without social-emotional success. You have to support them also simultaneously. And if I could just maybe add one final thing on a large, grand kind of changing the world scale, that's if you look at some of our leading thinkers today, like Steven Pinker, who wrote Enlightenment Now, and Yuval Harari, who wrote Homodeus. You know, some of the leading thinkers uh, who are, you know, kind of the most influential people right now in terms of where we need to go as a species um, have all reached the conclusion that in virtually every every way humans have made progress, save one. And that's in terms of well-being, that um, in terms of poverty, uh, inequality, you name it, economics, we've we've made incredible headway. Obviously, we still have a long way to go. But well-being has remained flat over the last many, many decades. So even from the 1970s, the quality of life for most people in the world has gone up dramatically. But their overall level of subjective well-being has flatlined. So to simply focus on academics, to simply focus on, um, you know, material uh, life, material well-being, you know, we've got that one kind of figured out. But the, what we have yet to figure out really is how to support the well-being of children and ultimately of adults. Well, that that sounds like um, sounds like you're you're defining why. Uh, let's let's bring it to life a little bit more now, Tom. You you propose we change schools to have higher overall adult success, and you talk about well-being. How should we go about bringing to life what you're proposing? What does it look like? to change schools from academic focus to this other focus about well-being, overall adult success. What are you guys saying that we should we should actually do? Uh, thank you, Corey. Um, first of all, I guess I want to I just want to put it out there that I as an educator, I believe in educators. I believe that educators care about kids. And I, and I don't believe for a moment that our children's academic shortcomings, assuming that they exist, have anything to do with our teachers not caring enough. On the contrary, I choose to believe that most of us became educators because we care deeply for kids. That said, however, I think that what really needs to change systemically is this. I think that we need to make intentionally caring for our kids 
make that piece the very foundation of our practice, as opposed to it just being something that we sprinkle into the day. I think it needs to be transparent in everything that we say and everything that we do and everything that we actually believe as teachers. I think we need to know and understand and emphasis on that understanding piece that that caring first does not make academics second or less important. It, it simply creates an environment where more kids can be more successful more often and more regularly. So I think that whole idea of of changing both teacher mindsets and student mindsets from a focus on the traditional, let's say, teacher-student relationship where, where the teacher is typically in charge and is primarily there to deliver a great specific curriculum and, and students are there to learn and should be listening and engaged at all time to a new mindset where it's the relationships with the students that are really valued, where it's those relationships, the uniqueness of them that make every classroom unique and where it's those relationships that become the catalysts or the entry points for the discovery and, and the, the, in fact, the learning. You know, wiser educators than me have said that kids don't learn from people they don't like. And I believe that to be true. <clears throat> I would, in fact, add to it that kids don't learn from or even engage with people who they don't believe care about them. So this relationship piece, it can't just be added as a, as a bonus for kids who are easy to like or easy to teach. It needs to be the foundation of every single interaction that we have with every single student in every class and every school and every province and, and territory. So, I, and I might add that, that it, this is especially necessary with the ones with whom that building of the relationship is most difficult, um, you know, the, the ones who need us the most. So it might sound like a tall order, but I think that's the change that's necessary. I think it's it's where we need to go. Yeah, I like what you said there. I think that um, when we know better, it's not that we're we're not there. It's not that we don't care. It's this we, we can we can change a little bit of our practice to make this this come alive. And and yeah, absolutely, we we will get better academics if we focus on the relationship. I think absolutely. now, Lori, I, I want to direct my next question to you. Um, why do you think that relationships or relationship-based teaching is the way forward? What what have you seen in your experience or what have you lived that makes you think that the relationships are so important? You know what, Corey, I think that you, you hit it there when you said experience. So it's from my experience that I believe that relationships is the way to go. So I've been fortunate in my my board, at least, to have a number of roles, often working with marginalized children and families. So I've seen the importance, whether it be as a teacher working with students or parents or whether working at a system level, working with community partners and teachers with teachers, uh, you know that these families are struggling and that these students are struggling. Often they're very emotional and, and we know that parents always want what's best for their kids. So so what I've seen in these roles over the years is that the relationships make all the difference. If you have a relationship with families, you're able to reach out and say, you know what, this isn't going so well today. You know, we need to get back together and figure out a plan because these can be difficult situations at times when children aren't sure. Uh, how to navigate the system when parents aren't sure how to navigate the system. And then also with community partners over the years in terms of them not understanding the system and the way that we might do business um, and perhaps not realizing how much we as educators actually do care for our children. So I found that the relationships with these partners um, help us to help them understand. Yeah. Do you know, I, I have a follow-up question for you, Lori, and that's, and that's that, 
it's kind of related to what David was saying about this whole idea of practical and proximal. And it was also what you said, and it took me about thinking about working with those community partners and the schools. Do you ever get a little bit of pushback about if it is really about where the kids are at and kids are at school, wouldn't everyone be then going towards the school? Are you worried at all that this is maybe going to put too much burden on teachers or it's burnout or anything like that? What would you say? It's like, oh yeah, yeah, it's proximal, but yeah, then the nutritionist is going to be here and the, you know, everyone's going to be just hammering on the teachers to, cause, cause that's the proximity. That's where the teacher, the, the students come. Um, and I don't know who wants to maybe answer that, but ha- have you thought about that at all? Have you, have you thought, Oh, do you think that this is more of a burden or do you have a response where this perhaps might actually make life a bit easier? You know what? I live that every day. So, <laughs> you know what? In my role, it's been to help um, almost navigate or mediate between our education system and with the community partners, because I do think there's a lot of pushback on education to, you know, you have to figure out a way to manage this. These children are with you all day. This is on you to take care of this. So I kind of work um, with teachers and with administrators and with community partners to understand, okay, this is ours. So as educators, our role is more around the tier one, tier two, how do we promote wellness and maybe prevent illness. But when it comes to treatment, we need our partners to be involved in that process. So there really is a lot of work that goes in to helping each understand what our roles are. Teachers work their buns off and and they still at times feel like they're more expected of them than what they're able to actually do. So that is part of my role is to help people understand whose role is which, because it does a lot of pushback on education to manage these things. And we're not social workers and we're not counselors or therapists, but there's so much that we can do and have done for many, many years to promote wellness. So my role is to kind of help people understand that difference. I think that's important and that I love that idea that just because you're working on wellness and just because you're working on relationships doesn't mean that you become the therapist, doesn't mean you become all of those other things. Those roles are still separate. So you put that really well. Thanks, Lori. Um, uh, Dave, back back to you. Um, you guys talk about eight conditions for student success. And the other thing that I know is that you talk about them being hierarchical. Um, I know that's a, that's a, maybe a big task to say, Hey, sum up the eight conditions, but can you, can you walk us through them quickly and, and why you think that they are hierarchical? Why do you think that some need to come before others? Okay. Yeah, you're right. I mean, our whole book covers the eight conditions. That really is the, the 90% of our book is to take people through those eight conditions. But I think I can do that pretty quickly. Okay. Um, and you're right. I mean, we're, we're saying that they're hierarchical and that there are good reasons for that. So let me go quickly through the eight conditions that come that really sort of make up our model. The first thing is that these eight conditions aren't our own, really. I mean, we've articulated it. We've created a framework. But if you look at the literature on human development, you see these conditions in one form or another for a long time. Uh, you see uh, uh, someone like Martin Seligman's PERMA model or Ryan and DC's self-determination theory are, are, are precursors to our model. Without models like that, we wouldn't have what we have. Um, uh, and we very briefly make reference to a whole bunch of, of models in, in our book that really we've we've taken a look at all the literature and said, what are the um, what's the essence of what kids need in schools? Um, 
And in a lot of ways, you know, I'm, I, I personally am really pleased when people say, hey, this is kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And we say, yeah, it is. It's a lot like that concept, except that it's in a school setting rather than, um, than in a kind of life and that it's kind of updated. It, um, it, it, it's, it's modernized because Maslow's hierarchy of needs has been around for a long time. I would hope that if people just think through the conditions they'd see the logic behind um, why these are not just hierarchical, but they're also kind of chronological. So we've created conditions that are um, that are kind of developmental. So quickly, um, our first condition is safety. We've chosen single words for each of these, but safety is probably better referred to as emotional safety. And it makes sense that if students don't feel emotionally safe, it's going to be hard for them to proceed anywhere further than that. Um, we talk a lot in our book about the attachment literature. We draw on that heavily, especially the idea that um, that there are these competing systems in in all of us, not just children, but all of us to this to you know to to, to, to this day, and regardless of our age, that part of us wants to and needs to explore. But that's only if we feel securely attached to a caregiver and individual, um, and that you can't explore unless you feel securely attached. And so that's a fundamental requirement. As you move up, then after being emotionally safe and feeling safe enough to explore one's world, and, and we mean an intellectual exploration as well as physical exploration, then you move on to regulation, which people can think about as often there, it's been referred to as self-regulation. We've dropped the self in self-regulation. We really want to highlight the co-regulatory aspect of emotion. So you could call it emotional regulation as well, and that students need to feel and be emotionally regulated. Um, and that's not always just calm. It's calm, but it means matching their their emotional and physiological state with their circumstances. Um, uh, and, and then you can go to the third one, belonging. Uh, and that actually helps shine a light on why it's hierarchical. We know, for example, that students, all of us need a sense of belonging, but we also know that when someone is dysregulated, if their amygdala has been activated and they're in a fight or flight response, one of the first things that a person does, young or old, is isolate themselves from other people. In, a, in, an, in an attempt to ensure that they don't feel further threats, they tend to isolate. So you can imagine if someone isn't emotionally regulated, they are isolating themselves unconsciously, and they're not able to develop a sense of belonging and not feel a sense of connection with peers or with educators. So you've got to get that emotional safety, emotional regulation, and then, uh, and then there's a chance to build genuine belonging between students and their teachers and their peers. As we move up the scale, we get into positivity. Positivity is not just rose-colored glasses. <laughs> positivity is about um, having a very positive environment in which students can attend school, but it's also a positive attitude, a focus on their strengths rather than their deficits. What we really highlight a lot for educators is it's the fifth condition is academic engagement. And uh, and so you, you really have to work at getting those four other conditions in place in order for students to be academically engaged. Um, for sure, you can force a student to be academically engaged. You can hover over them while they do a worksheet and say, finish your worksheet or else. But, um, you know, that's not a, those aren't, that's not a very good situation to learn in. But also, yeah. 
it's going to be exhausting for teacher and student alike. So rather than pushing for engagement and skipping those other four conditions, we really talk to educators a lot about putting those conditions into place where engagement comes more naturally. As you get into engagement, you can also see that we're moving up kind of developmentally to the older grade levels because next comes an identity where students start to explore and express who they are, as well as um, understand the differences between themselves and others and appreciate those differences. Uh, and then that moves up to mastery, the importance of having mastery experiences. What's vital in mastery is not that people, students, young or older, feel like they master something. It's that they have moments of mastery experiences. And that gets into the literature of sort of mastery goals versus performance goals and education. There's a lot of pressure on teachers to have performance goals, but all the literature on motivation um, shows that mastery goals work the best. And then finally, the top, top condition at the kind of pinnacle as we go from bottom to top is meaning. And, and there's a lot of pieces to meaning. But basically, of course, that's that um, school needs to be and feel meaningful to students. You can see, too, how this is developmental. Um, you think about secondary education, a lot of uh, uh, teenagers struggle with whether or not school feels meaningful. There's probably few, if any, teenagers who, ever, who, who didn't come home one day from school and say, why are we doing this? Uh, and the teacher or the parent is hard-pressed to explain exactly why. Um, but not just as does school need to feel meaningful. An important part of meaning is that that student needs to feel meaningful at school. And this is where you get into research that shows, for example, that the, um, the single biggest protective factor for suicide is that the, that individual young person feels like they matter to someone. And, and so when we're talking about meaning, we are also talking about that kind of meaning, that, that students need to feel like there is someone at school that they matter to. And the research shows, and we quote this in our book, that for those kids who feel like they don't matter to anyone, that's the single biggest risk for suicide. But when you have someone in your life that feel that, that, that you, you know you matter to them, that's also the single biggest protective factor. So there's a lot, of, um, there's a lot to each of these conditions, um, but hopefully you can see even just logically, it sort of makes some sense that some are more basic and fundamental, and then we get into higher abstract kinds of ideas. I think you did a really good job of condensing a whole lot of research and a whole lot of um, information into a short little bit. So thank you very much for that. David. <laughs> um, I want to bring this back to what you kind of said previously, one of the previous comments, and, and maybe Tom, I'll have you answer this question is you were talking about how you think that this, this third path, this focus on relationships really, really helps us with the students who are oftentimes the most difficult to reach. And I think about how that really ties into trauma and to trauma-informed schools. And I know they're getting a lot of traction uh, in Canada and I know around the world. How do you think that this work links with trauma-informed practices? And what do you think it has to offer for teachers who are dealing with students who have experienced high levels of trauma? That's a great question. Um, first of all, though, I'm, I'm glad that you use the term trauma-informed um, because we hear a lot today about being trauma-sensitive. And, and, and I 
I think that there's a tendency in education to um, to use terms so much that they become buzz terms, if you will, and they, they lose some of their meaning. And from my experience, um, being trauma informed, uh, which takes some professional learning first, results in the use of strategies and efforts that help us to become trauma sensitive, to build trauma sensitive classrooms in schools that that are intentional and and they're based on now uh, evidence and research and and therefore are far more likely to impact um, engagement and learning. So, uh, but I'm also glad you asked this question, Corey, and I'm glad you directed it to me because it, it kind of takes me back to m the beginning of my personal journey with respect to the third path. Um, uh, I was working as a special education teacher at a school with, well, let's just say uh, in a demographic that had far too much trauma in the lives of, of, of many, perhaps most of the students that attended the school. Their lives were, you know, impacted on a daily basis by poverty, homelessness, uh, hunger, racial tensions, um, unemployed parents, uh, generations of hurt uh, brought about by many generations of horrific residential school experience. And the list goes on and on and on and on. It was a, it was that school. David did an excellent job um, walking us through those eight conditions that need to be nurtured in order to build a, uh, a culture of learning and growth. I would suggest that the impacts of trauma that prevent our students from engaging in ways that they otherwise might be or otherwise might engage are confronted when we purposefully nurture the more basic, the more basic of the hierarchical third path conditions. So those of, you know, creating physical and emotional safety, uh, helping students to develop regula regulation strategies and, and creating that sense of belonging that is so necessary. So again, in order to ensure that we do this intentionally and, and that we do it with purpose um, we need to as opposed to you know simply replicating what somebody else is doing we need to we need to know our kids well we need to have those relationships and we need to understand how and why the trauma is impacting their lives I don't think we need to be neuroscientists um, to appreciate the impact of say alcohol on the healthy development of a fetal brain so in the same way, I think we need to at least be aware of the scientific fact that repeated exposure to trauma floods the brain with cortisol and it impacts the healthy brain development as well. And, you know, this is damage that actually shows up on sophisticated PET scans and, and perhaps more importantly explains that what teachers sometimes interpret as willful misbehavior on the part of the student is actually quite unintentional. Sometimes what appears to be an unwillingness to behave is in reality just an inability to act or react in a different way. So it's not fair for us to treat an inability as an unwillingness. So the better we know our students, the more apt we are to look past that behavior and perhaps look more for toward a need that the child might be trying to express. But I, I, I want to just close that before I leave that question, because two points come to mind I just want to make very quickly. Um, one is that while we certainly believe that paying attention to the third path conditions and um, that support learning and well-being will most definitely support um, being trauma-informed and trauma-sensitive, we wouldn't want to position the third path as a trauma-sensitive resource it's because, you know, it's it's bigger than that. It's more than that. It supports trauma sensitivity in ways that are different but similar to ways that it supports other school initiatives. It's not a program designed for one particular area of need. Rather, it's more of a model or a philosophy that kind of supports good teaching overall for all students. And, and my, the last point I would make is I guess I could call it a simple precaution. The students that I referred to at the school that I last taught in had extremely difficult lives. Um, but we need to remember as educators that 
that all students experience trauma in one form or another. The, 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 tr the triggers might be different, the duration might be different, but the impact is often the same. So we want to be very careful that we don't assume our children's lives are trauma-free. Uh, so again, it comes back to know your students. Relationships matter, right? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Lori, I'm going to... I'm going to close up the the part on the third path, asking you a question a little bit about resistors. And that's what do you say to the teacher who still has that mindset that we need to punish bad behavior out of students, that we're just letting them off easy by building up this relationship and all this kind of stuff. What might you say um, to someone who, 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 like I said, is a bit resistant to the this idea of building up the relationship in order to increase academics or to increase wellness? You know what i I think I with a question like that, I would I would start with considering what might be influencing that teacher's mindset and remembering that change is difficult, especially for those who have been teaching for many many years and may maybe haven't adjusted to the changes we're seeing. Um, in our students, as well as the expectations of teachers that they're able to manage this increase in need, sometimes on their own. So I'd start there, you know, and, and then I'd spend some time talking and listening, empathizing and validating, um, because I know that this is a really difficult, um, like all helping professions can be pretty overwhelming at times. So and I've learned that over time, you know, the need to kind of give teachers that understanding as well. Um, and, you know, from there, I, I kind of get into um, Helping folks understand that, you know, we need to create those conditions in a classroom. There's a quote that I used to use back in a former position with schools that helped a lot of teachers to understand what I was trying to get at. And it was kind of around something like if you if a child doesn't know math, you teach. If they don't know how to do their, their language or if they don't know how to read, you teach. If they don't know how to swim, you teach. Right. And then when it comes to students. Um, well, we used to say they didn't know how to behave, but I think it's even more than that. Um, they couldn't behave for reasons outside of their control. Do we teach or do we punish? And I think traditionally our intent are, you know, we've kind of looked at punishment rather than how do we teach these students. So often when you ask a teacher those questions, they kind of go, oh, wait a minute, maybe that's really not the best approach. So we, we take that approach sometimes with families we or with schools, sorry. And sometimes we also talk about um, do people understand what's happening in the little brain of this person? You know, when, when you have a better understanding of, of what's happening in their brain, you're less likely to think that it's intentional behavior and more likely to understand where the behavior is coming from and that it's a form of communication. Once, once teachers are able to understand that this child's trying to communicate something with you, they're not just trying to make your day difficult, um, it's much easier not to take those behaviors personally. So that's kind of the approach I've taken over the years. Yeah, that sounds good. It sounds like you have uh, a lot of just basic skills around conflict resolution and stuff like that. Yeah. And then it's also built into when you know more, it's easier to do more. It's the whole idea yeah. of, yeah, and explain the research. And you guys mentioned that before with all of the the, the kind of neuroscience that, that you were mentioning, PET scans and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Let's move into education a bit more generally. And sometimes this can be more general, but sometimes it can be actually related to, to the work that you all do around the third path as well. And I'll let kind of whoever wants to answer this one, or maybe you all want to have a hack at it. But I want to know, is there something about learning or education that you believe is true that most other people or a large percentage of other people would disagree with you on? 
Um, this is Tom. Do you mind if I jump in on this one? Yeah, go I'll, ahead, Tom. Yeah. I'll, I'll make this a little bit personal. In, in addition to speaking about well-being and uh, working with these incredible colleagues of mine, I do spend a lot of time facilitating math professional learning for boards across the country. And I often find myself up on a soapbox, soapbox, if you will, talking about how kids learn math, like most subjects, developmentally, and that as such, I believe many of the gaps in learning and understanding are often directly related to too much grade-based teaching, trying to get students to access expectations and outcomes that are, you know, beyond their reach, just because they happen to be in a particularly... Well, they happen to be arbitrarily, those expectations or outcomes arbitrarily placed in a curriculum grade uh, that they're expected to be in. And the problem is that students don't have these little dials on the side of their head that flick from one grade to the other each uh, September. Rather, they just, they are who they are. They are who they were in June, and now they're back in September, and we just need to move forward. So, although it might seem at first this this response might seem unrelated to a podcast dealing with student well-being. I believe that it's very, very much connected. For consider, for example, how the how such a situation impacts student well-being from a perspective of self-efficacy, self-confidence, and and a student's overall experience in school. If indeed most learning is both developmental and experiential then it stands to reason that the further a child gets along with their education, the less likely it is that they'll have the same experiences and the same opportunities of their classmates. So it really shouldn't be a surprise to any of us that students' needs will vary and that teaching needs to be differentiated. And so when that doesn't happen, students begin to feel, you know, they begin to develop negative self-perceptions and a negative sense of well-being. So I know that we are, we, that's a big we, that's teachers across the province, across the provinces, across the territories, across the country. We are getting better and better at differentiating to meet student needs. But I will say that as I travel around the country, supporting boards with improvement plans, particular to math, it's also apparent through their voices as I go along that we have a long way to go. So as an advocate for teachers, I don't think it's fair to expect that kind of developmental teaching to just happen. I don't think um, it's going to happen until we, we, we ensure that all boards have, you know, present sufficient professional learning opportunities and, and make sure that um, sufficient resources are available. So I, I guess that's what I think of when, I, when I'm asked, to, would, would, would some educators disagree with that? I think it's really necessary that we, we acknowledge that a lot of the gaps, if you will, or the um, kids not being where we hope they would be, you know, it's about the teachers, but not because of the teachers. It's about the teachers, the resources, the training, the and the developmental nature and the experiential nature of learning. So it's a good one. Anyone else with uh, something they get pushed back from? You know what? I'd like to add. Um, I think things are, are definitely improving in terms of our mindset. But in in the past, one of the things I've received a bit of pushback is regarding the, the role of the teacher and the social emotional development of students. Um, I think when I first started 20 years ago or so, that wasn't really as much of our role. We kind of looked to others to do that social emotional development, at least in um, explicitly or intentionally. And I, I think a lot of progress has, has been made, but it's taken some time for us to adjust that idea that we're not able to teach if your kids are not social emotionally engaged. And if they can't manage their emotions or manage the day, you might be teaching to a group, that, but they're not learning. So I think it's taken some time for us to get there, and I think there's still so, a way to go. But I think that we've, we've uh, that's something I've struggled with in the years. Absolutely. If you taught something and no one learned it, did you actually teach it? <laughs> Good question. Good question. 
Yeah. Uh, David, did you want to take a hack at that one? Anything you get uh, pushback from people disagree with you on? I think I think Tom and Laurie covered it pretty well. Uh, I think that there's a larger issue, um, but it's maybe too big. It's almost a separate conversation. And, and that is um, something we've kind of alluded to already. And it's um, it's about where it, you know, it's about where kids who struggle with mental health difficulties are best supported. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier, but that um, how vital it is that the resources that exist within the community, children's mental health resources, child welfare resources, and things like that really be directed toward the school and to support kids there. And I think um, um, this is a big topic and, and I, I'll, I'll restrain myself from, from going into it too much, but just that there's such a disconnect across the country between children's mental health services and teaching services, if you will, uh, and and that um, something that we've advocated a lot for is that to bring those services all to the school, but where services for children and even their parents exist under one roof, both children's mental health services, even um, things like um, job preparation services for parents, things like that. So that's something that I think we really kind of fantasize about uh, um, is a kind of a different way of configuring schools. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not the first time that's been brought up. I mean, I've talked to Dr. Suzanne Squires, who we we talked exactly about that. How do we work better together? How do we break down some of those barriers? So I think that that conversation and that idea is out there. And yeah, I'm hopeful too. I'm hopeful too. I think that it's better outcomes. Next question. When you think of the term master teacher, who or what comes to mind and why? Um, you know, it's something that Tom and Lori and I've talked a lot about, about um, master teachers. Um, and there's a couple of things that we um, we talk about. First is maybe it goes back to the book and the resources and that we've we've talked a lot about that. We're not trying to take teachers who um, who aren't master teachers and turning and, and getting them to do something totally new to turn them into master teachers. I think we're, we feel are most um, satisfied when teachers come up to us and say, you are articulating what it is that I believe and strive to do. So we're not introducing something wildly new here. What we've, I think we really strive to do is try to break down what is it that master teachers do to encourage those who are on the path to being a master teacher to keep doing what they're doing and what their instincts and, and conscience tell them to do. Um, but I would I would say no matter no matter you know no matter what else we talk about it comes down to great teachers first of all great teachers really know that they're great that's something that's so fascinating about it that the really spectacular teachers are are working away in the classroom are dedicated to their students not seeking the spotlight um, and just doing great things so we uh, we really want to acknowledge that. But one of the reasons that they're so great is that they are amazing at relationships, amazing at responding to the needs of their students, reading them well. Um, I spent quite a lot of time this summer really grappling with this question. What are the qualities of a great teacher? How do we boil that down? And something that didn't didn't this is this is after the book. It's not in the book. It's something I've talked a lot more when do training with people is we've come up with the acronym CARE, which sounds kind of schmaltzy, but CARE just emerged out of nowhere. It was very easy and that great teachers teach with consistency, attunement, responsivity, and empathy. Spells CARE. 
And if you dig deeply into those four qualities, you'll see that um, they're, 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 there's a lot to those four things. And, and the great teachers are incredibly consistent. They're tuned in to each of their students. They're responsive to their needs. And they are dedicated to understanding each student and where they're coming from in terms of empathy. And I think, um, you know, those you know, those qualities make up great teachers. Uh, they have all kinds of wonderful skills in terms of instruction, but layered with that are, are just extraordinary relationship skills. And, and I, I would just reiterate, though, is that they don't know it. Uh, and in fact, they can't always even articulate why they do what they do. They just do it. Uh, they kind of do it intuitively. You bet. Any of the anyone else have have maybe a master teacher or did that kind of did that kind of get to it? David just reminded me if I could just add to that. I think Please. that while many of our teachers and we and we celebrate that they intuitively practice in this way where r- relationships are intentional. Um, we've seen in some of our experience you may have something different in uh, other provinces called the TLLP we have in Ontario. It's a teacher leadership and learning project where the ministry kind of funds has a little bit of money put aside for teachers who want to explore an idea. And we see that while some teachers intuitively practice this way, there's still hope for those teachers that struggle a little bit with embracing some of these ideas. And this teacher leadership and learning project allows a teacher to take the lead in something. So, for example, they might be interested in learning more about how you manage challenging behaviors in the classroom. They might get a little bit of money and they can do a project. Um, that's centered around something they're focused on. So they may do a little research. Tom might have something to add to this, where they can actually have an opportunity to to do a little exploring and experiencing a success that allows them to become more intentional about relationships in their classroom. Tom, do you have something to add to that? I know you have some experience with the TLOP. Well, I, 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 I do, and it was a wonderful experience, and I happen to be the teacher lead in a TLP that, you know, what it did is it gave me the opportunity to get a group of teachers together, not necessarily leaders, not, not administrators, but a group of teachers. We were very much supported by our administrators, and we were able to focus our professional learning for the course of a year funded by the ministry on something of interest to us. So it just really helped with the buy-in. In our case, it was with uh, respect to mental health, and it was extremely significant and had a big impact on kids. But the only the, the closing thing that I would say with respect to this question, without having to add anything, because Laurie and David articulated really well, is I could say the proof is in just asking any adult to think about who their favorite teacher was. And when you think back, when we think back to who our favorite teacher is, I don't think we think about the one who was really skilled at math or really skilled at language or really skilled at any curriculum area. It was a it was a teacher who had a good relationship with us, a teacher who made us feel cared for, a teacher who we thought cared for us and therefore we cared for them. Inevitably, you ask anybody, who is your favorite teacher? Who do you remember? It's something about a relationship that was very positive, and it likely engaged that student or us as a student in in learning. So, yeah, uh, yeah, that absolutely. That's what we remember. It's how they treated us, not necessarily what they taught. Um, last one before we get into a couple quick hitters is: Do either of you have a particular experience, and it could be uh, a failure or it could be a success that helped you learn an important lesson? Um, something that sticks out in your mind, saying, "Okay, that was a particularly good or a particularly bad experience that." really informed your practice going forward and that you refer to in your head? I think I'll I'll respond to that one first, if you don't mind. Please. Um, In in my years 
in the different roles that I've been afforded over the years, um, I, w- I considered myself to be a helper and I was eager to support teachers to help them better understand students and provide strategies that would make their lives easier. And over the years, one of the things that, that came up again and again, and I really learned from this, was that not only did the students need to feel supported and competent and like they were having success at school, but the teachers needed that experience as well. So the teachers would say to me, yeah, Laurie, I get that this child needs to feel competent at school and he needs to experience success, but I also need to experience success. And can you help me do that? So that really got me thinking more and more about how do we support teachers to do this work every day in supporting the struggling students. So that was a big learning for me over the years. That's a great one. Absolutely. The third path applies for adults too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Anyone else, um, maybe a favorite experience or a, a learning experience? This is David. I'll add to it. It's 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 different, but and it's a theme that maybe we'll we'll touch on again, and we haven't touched on yet, and it's really important to the three of us. And it's that small things matter. Uh, um, if there's a lesson, it's that we sometimes in education think about big things and big aspirations and and uh, standardized testing and all kinds of grand things, but it's really the tiny things that matter. And I just personally speaking, I can remember teaching and saying to my students. I would want to, um, you know, I would want to allay their fears when I was introducing a new concept. So I'd say to my students, don't worry, this concept's easy. It's a, it's an easy concept. And I remember that all of my, my students would just sort of reel back and be anxious. Um, and I thought I was actually helping them by saying, don't worry, this is easy. But when I would introduce a new concept with this sort of reassuring kind of claim that it was easy... Finally, a student said to me, you know, um, David, when you say that to us, we worry that if it's easy and we don't understand it, then we're going to look dumb. Uh, um, And I realized that my small attempt to reassure them actually backfired because by claiming something that was easy, uh, you know, that they they got anxious that it was easy. They should be able to learn it. And in fact, what I did as an alternative was I started introducing concepts saying, this is a tough concept, but if you work hard, you're going to grasp it. And although that seems like a really small thing, what I realized is that my language is so critical that every word that I choose when it comes to introducing a lesson or a concept and interacting with my students was setting them up, setting them up to feel successful or setting them up to feel anxious. And um, that that was a real moment for me to realize what I was saying wasn't just neutral. Uh, um, and often it was counterintuitive. Saying something was easy did not help at all. In fact, saying it was hard made them dig in and lean forward and say, I think we can tackle this. Um, and so since then, I've been so, so, so much more aware of um, how I sort of set up learning and, and take a lot more care with the words that I, I use, thinking about how it will impact my students rather than how, how it makes me feel. Yeah. Tom, any anything to add or any, any other experience to share? Um, just quickly, as when you asked the question, I thought about the expectations that I've had of kids. And I think I think that a good teacher will always have high expectations, but I think I learned when I reflect back on my earliest years of teaching and, and I shudder, <laughs> but one of the things I shudder about was that I held 
all of the students to high expectations, which were probably too similar to each other's. And and I didn't, therefore, take into account knowing my kids and developing those relationships, those important relationships with kids, because I shouldn't have the same expectations of all children. And that's why that curriculum becomes so muddy, right? Because academically, we are sort of, when we have grade-based expectations and outcomes, we are kind of holding everybody to the same standard. And I'm thinking more about expectations about, you know, being who you are and being the best that you can be and everything like that. But even in that realm, kids are different. They've had different experiences. They have different levels of support, different, and they can't all be the best that I, as defined by what I think they should be. And and, uh, I think teachers just need to realize that the kids are kids and and, uh, sometimes small steps are incredibly important and they're at different places. So yes, expect the most, have high expectations, um, both from a a perspective of academics and just overall development, but make them relative to who those kids are. Know your kids um, and be kind. I think those are all excellent, excellent experiences. Thank you so much for sharing. A couple questions that might be a little bit faster uh, in your responses. Uh, we'll start off with uh, maybe a little bit more of a technology-focused one. Do you have a favorite app or a website or other media, film or something like that that you often refer teachers to? You go ahead. Well, I have some personal ones that I Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Yeah. I really like myself. I use Headspace and I've I've started using a new one. I think it's called Insight Timer. Um, I'm a big fan of heavyweight. um, But I'm not sure what else I would refer teachers to. What about you fellas? Uh, I, um, I, you know, I, I love books. I love reading books. There's so many books to, uh, to cover. And what I discovered Quite a few years ago is Audible, the books on on tape. And I, um, you know, there's it's hard to especially dense books, books that are packed with a lot of ideas. It's difficult to sit and have the time to kind of wade through them. And so I am addicted to walking my dogs and listening to books on tape. And I can go through a book or two a week. God knows how much money I spend on um, Audible. Uh, um but um, I love, love, love the idea that, you know, just about any book now you can, you know, there's an audio version of it and you can, you can go for a walk, get some exercise and, and, and learn it at the same time. So I'm always encouraging people to uh, don't just buy the book and put it on your shelf. Listen to the book uh, because it's a much easier way to do it. And uh, I, w- I would just, I'm just going to go with an old favorite and that's Twitter. I just, uh, um, I would, if for something newer, I'd have to go to my grandchildren and they'd have to teach me. But, but Twitter, I think that, I think probably because unlike other social media platforms, I've kind of kept Twitter somewhat professional in a friendly and fun way. But it, it's it, anything that I follow or anything that I tweet generally has to do with um, probably, you know, 90% education and at least something tied to that. So it's something that I enjoy, something that I learn from and something that I'm, you know, comfortable sharing with without, you know, yeah, you know, I, 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 I like Twitter. I, I would agree. Yeah. And you're not the first person to say that. I think that the educational discourse on Twitter is pretty darn good if you're it on is. the right channels. It is. Yeah. How about, uh, well, no, uh, Tom will like this one. Uh, favorite book? Or a book that you refer to a lot, or maybe that you even give to other people's, and it can't be the third path because that's cheating. <laughs> <laughs> that's too bad. That was our answer, actually. 
How, how did you know that I would like that one? I do like that question very much. I'm, I'm confused by how you know that. The favorite book, I mean, I can't believe that this wouldn't be everybody's favorite book or movie or whatever, but it has to be The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> because if think about that. Everybody knows the characters. Everybody knows all those characters. And isn't it cool how they were all so convinced that they were missing something? And in each case, something was so huge that they were willing to you know, put their lives in peril for it. Um, only to find out, of course, that they all had everything they needed all along. But it's what's fascinating to me is how they discovered that they had it all along. It was through making connections and building friendships along their journey. Sounds a lot to me like building relationships along their path. And it just it just reinforces for me and allows me to reinforce in a fun way that, you know, genuine and authentic relationships will beat out wicked witches and humbug wizards <laughs> every time. They're so important in all aspects of life. Awesome. <laughs> I top that. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I won't even try to top that. I'll just tell you, you know what? I love reading. I love books. Don't even get me started on libraries. Sometimes I buy books just to have books, but my recent favorite is that I'm just getting into is Brene Brown's Dare to Lead. So from what I've read so far, that's one I would recommend. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll add to it as well. Although I do want to say for anyone who ever watches any of us do presentations on the third path, our conditions are laid out on a path. And it's a yellow brick road. Of and course, it's, and of it's course it is. And it's only because Tom forces us <laughs> to put them on a yellow brick road. So people can look for that yellow yeah. brick road because we it's always, blue yeah. Uh, yeah, unfortunately in our book, the publishers turned the yellow brick road blue, which broke your heart, eh, Tom? Well, it did. But in that our presentations, wrong. it's always, always a yellow brick road for, to, to, yeah, to recognize the impact of The Wizard of Oz. The only thing I'd add is that um, book-wise... I really would encourage educators to read books outside of education. There's a lot of great books out there, and educators often feel, I think, a pre pressure to read more instructional strategy books or more education books. But there's great, great books out there that, that have a lot to say about education in an indirect way. So I'm thinking about maybe two books I've recently read. James Clear has a book that just came out a couple of weeks ago called Atomic Habits that I thought was fabulous. And right now I'm reading a book um, by um, about the tech industry called It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. And any educator who reads that will see a lot of similarities to education because it's really about keeping your eye on what matters most and not getting distracted by all the craziness, you know, that can seem so urgent at the time, but in the grand scheme of things is not really what matters. So I'd really encourage um, educators to read outside of education, whatever they can. And that one's by Jason Fried, is it not? I think it is. Yeah, yes. I've been uh, eyeing it up, so uh, I think I'm going to pull the trigger on that one since uh, we got the recommendation. <laughs> that one's excellent. Well, yes. Next question is: uh, What's one thing that you do every day or most days that helps you to be well and healthy? I'll go first with that one. Um, I'm sure my, my partners here are tired of hearing about my dog, um, but I walk my dog in nature. So it not only forces me to exercise, but allows me access to nature. Um, that, of course, is when I'm not too afraid that my dog and I will be eaten by large creatures in the woods, uh, which hasn't happened yet, thankfully. But walking my dog in nature is something I try to do every day. 
Lori has a stick. This is David here that actually has a metal, like, like, like nasty metal. And oh, so it's a walking stick. Yeah, it's a bear and, stick. And it's, it's a bear stick. So <laughs> she means business. <laughs> she and her tiny little dog, her dog actually couldn't fend off a squirrel. Uh, um, but, but you could because you I, have a very dude. frightening stick with a very squirrel stick, yeah. scary, scary point. She walks it. softly with, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. right. That's right. I would say um, I, I would say something that I think the three of us have come to do, and it kind of sort of just happened as we've been on this journey. But we've we've sort of it's important to me, and I think it's important to us that we self reflect very regularly, and we take this third path um, quite seriously in terms of are we on the path? We we talk to teachers about what it means to be on the path with kids, with colleagues, with with aspects of education but we've taken it one step further and kind of um self-reflect our whole lives our experiences our relationships our conversations our interactions with people in general in terms of being on the path or off the path and and we do sometimes find ourselves and and these are easy colleagues and friends to talk to about you know something i did today a conversation i had or an interaction i had and i didn't feel good about it it wasn't on the path it wasn't this or that so i think that self-reflection piece is really important of course, it's an important part of education or a job, any educator or any one of the partners in education. But I think it comes, it's bigger than that. It's about life, about self-reflecting. Are you are you really on the path? And, and what are you doing to aspire to be on the path every day with every interaction that you have? Yeah, I would, I would add to what Tom said. It's really quite fun to say to one another, oh, my God, I was in the bushes today. Like, yeah, I just yeah. stumbled into, yeah, yeah. And, and I was like, why, what happened? You know, and, and it really has become a shorthand for us to talk about living our lives with integrity and compassion and kindness. And, and but it becomes easier to talk yeah. about the times where we fell short of that because the path becomes where we want to stay, but we recognize there's all kinds of ways that we just sort of stumble into the bush yeah. and go, whoops. Uh, um, but then we're able to talk to each other and say, I need to get back on the path. You're almost, you're almost using the term like everybody knows what we're talking about <laughs> and then realizing they don't. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> it's become such a shorthand yeah. for us about yeah. living our lives yeah. in the way that we want to live our lives and treating people the way that we're trying to treat people. Being kind. Yeah. The last one is, is there an organization or person that inspires you? Anybody want to? Yeah, go ahead. Well, um, this is recent, so it comes to mind, and it was very inspiring to me. But it's Tanya Talega, who you may know as the uh, 2018 CBC Massey Lecturer. And um, her work on uh, with respect to First Nations and Indigenous issues and uh, residential schools, etc. I see her using her books and her voice uh, to help others to gain true understanding, often for the first time, and to face, you know, truths, the truths of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. And I just think that her message is so powerful and so important. And if you have read her work or or listened to her speak, you probably will understand that, you know, myself being a proud resident of Thunder Bay in northwestern Ontario, I was I was quite frankly a little nervous, um, a little afraid about reading her books or attending her lectures. I didn't want to hear Thunder Bay spoken of in what was likely going to be negative terms, but I am so glad that I did. Um, I will say that to me, she has become uh, a calming of the waters, uh, a, a kind of a voice of hope, 
a symbol of uh, long needed systemic change. So uh, to, I don't know, to me, that's the kind of stuff heroes are made of. So it came to mind when you asked the question. I, I think uh, she's doing wonderful things. Maybe I'll, I'll add to and I because I think I actually speak for the three of us when I say that in some ways it's not about a particular person or a particular organization, but I know what has connected Tom and Lori and I is that we are always um, sort of champions of the underdog, champions of the people who are on the margins or on the periphery. We're, you know, we do this work from Thunder Bay. We're, we're a long way from the big city. Uh, and, um, and so um, whether it's individual educators or individual schools who are doing important work but don't get recognized or doing it on the margins or in the periphery, I mean, those are the kind of people we want to shine the spotlight on. Those are the, when we discover those people, and we discover them all the time. That's what's thrilling for us is to say, "Wow, there's amazing things uh, going on in this school or in this classroom," and nobody realizes it. And I think one of the things that has been a real privilege in writing this book and being able to connect with educators across the country is to be able to do that. It's have a bit of a a little bit of a kind of a a, a kind of a vehicle. To, to be able to tell teachers you're doing a, a great job. Uh, you're, you might live in some remote, remote part of the country, but you're doing things that are remarkable. Um, you don't have to live in the big city to be doing cutting-edge stuff. And in fact, often these kinds of things that are doing being done in the smaller cities and towns and on the periphery are as cutting edge or more than in the big cities. So that I think is always really exciting when we come across those teachers in schools, and that's a that's a very common common practice that we discover those people, and we're we're thrilled to sing their praises. Absolutely, well said. All right. Um... Well, if there's no other ones on that one, let's uh, let's talk about next steps. Um, what are what are the next things that you uh, either individually or as a group are looking at? Um, what are the next steps for the third path, perhaps, or or even maybe what's the next? Um, perhaps it's a little early, but what are the next steps in the third path um, that you guys are thinking about or they're just discussing? Well, I think we're we're just in the process of booking a flight to come out and see you. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to meet you in person. Um, you know what? My for myself, I think it's really about staying the path and staying connected with my my dear dear friends and my co-authors and supporting each other to stay the path. Um, on a professional level, I'm I'm hoping that we can continue in in whatever way it looks for different boards or different schools that are interested in doing this work and looking at how can we support folks in terms of implementation. And then in my position with the board, I'm hoping to do what I can do to support things such as relationship-based leadership or um, educator well-being. Like, is there a way that I can influence policies and practices at a system level that help ensure that we're taking care of the people who are taking care of our kids? So those are some of the things I hope to do. Okay. I can talk. This is David. I'll talk about yeah. maybe a, the, I, I, I think it's been interesting, you know, kind of getting this book out there and then talking to educators. Uh, and I again, I'm, I speak for myself, but I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone uh, that what we've we talk so much about the important of, importance of relationships and about the teacher student relationship. And I think for me, what I've been spending a lot of time reading and writing every day about and thinking about is 
what does that really mean? What does that really look like? What are the elements of that relationship? How do we support educators to improve their ability to have those relationships? We all kind of throw around the word relationships. Most, I think, educators would think they have good relationships, but what does that really look like? And then the second piece to this that I've already maybe alluded to before is um, the just the power of small, small actions. I think too often we talk about whole school reform and these sweeping changes and people adopting new pedagogical strategies and instructional strategies. And, you know, it that really kind of flies in the face of implementation research. It's all about small shifts, small moves, small changes. So I think one of the things that I've become so enthusiastic about exploring and writing about and talking about is the power of small, small, small things. Uh, the small, the, the incredible difference that a small t change in your practice can make. And then just on a more practical level, I think all of us continue to um, really be thrilled and honored to be able to participate in professional development opportunities with educators. I'm, um, I'm doing a workshop in Toronto on February 9th at the Maven School that's open to anyone in Toronto. Um, doing a uh, a webinar for the Ontario Principals Council that TV Ontario, our our public TV station, is supporting, um, and there's lots of neat things happening like that. So it's really um, kind of surprising because you you never you know you write a book you never know where it's going to go you you sort of think oh, maybe your mum will buy it but nobody else. <laughs> uh, um, so it's really gratifying that people are actually looking at this, but it's amazing that it, it's opening up a conversation. And I remember um, a couple of years ago. Tom actually said, um, this is a conversation. This is not a solution. This is not a series of strategies. This is a conversation. And I think the thing that's most gratifying is to keep that conversation alive, talking to educators across the country about what does this mean? What does this look like? And what does this look like for educators within their class? We're not prescribing to people exactly what they need to do. We're inviting them to have a conversation with themselves and their colleagues. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Tom, anything to add? Uh... Well, just along the same lines that both yeah. David and Laurie spoke of, implementation um, is where it goes. Uh, continuing the conversation, I'm always finding my self-thanking boards who invite us, myself, any one of us or two of us or three of us in for helping us to continue the conversation. Um, I, On a personal level, I... Um, I made the decision to retire from my school board a couple of years ago, not because I was ready in any way, shape or form to retire, but because I was close enough to that, that I could, it could at least be a decision. And um, what, you know, I, I, I had the opportunity to go in as an administrator in a large school here. And um, it was something that I had wanted for a long time, but this had built up this. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm very fortunate to do a lot of math professional learning as well. And so ultimately what it would have meant is, um, stopping this conversation in many ways, at least not having the same number of opportunities to go out and to to work with boards um, and schools and um, tribal councils. And, uh, you know, we've done a lot of work in Inuvik of all places and they keep asking us to come back. So that opportunity to continue this conversation has kind of taken on a life of its own. That's where I'm focusing. So that sounds great. Last question is, how might people connect with you, both uh, if they're interested in perhaps getting uh, some professional learning around the third path, but also individually? Because I know that you guys all have some uh, some some individual interests, uh, maybe email, maybe a Twitter handle. Um, 
Uh, do you have a website for the third path, of course? Yeah. So the easiest way is our website. So it's yeah. actually um, thirdpath.ca. And, and there is a... Um, there is a page that people can go to that gives a little write up on the on each of us as well as a a link to our email, uh, and that's really a great place to to go and to connect with us. I would also add, you know, that we are now um, we were just talking about this yesterday that we're hearing from so many schools about neat things they're doing and implementing the third path on their terms that um, we'd be really interested in hearing from schools about the work they're doing. And we actually want to start to develop our website so that we can um, we can profile schools for doing this work. Not, again, so that we can actually take any credit for it, but that different schools are doing neat work, can find out about one and what one another is doing, and they can connect. So we're really interesting, interested in networking schools together um and i know schools from bc to nova scotia that are doing this work but they're not necessarily having a chance to talk to people who are also doing that work so we'd really encourage people to go to thirdpath.ca uh and but also soon there'll be a link on there to to answer a few questions maybe upload a photo and talk a little bit about the work that's happening at their schools so we can shine a spotlight on on all the great things they're doing Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. So that sounds like the central point of contact, uh, thirdpath.ca, and they can get in uh, from there. And uh, yeah, send emails about how the third path is working in those schools. So with that, I just want to thank you all three. This is my first interview. Where we've had three different people on the podcast. Yeah. Enlightening. <laughs> and I thank you so much for all of the uh, your, your well-thought-out answers and for also this... Um, this info, this this idea, I love your idea of of oralizing or making concrete what what we kind of know intuitively or that we're doing. But I love how yeah. you make it so clear and, and also give a little bit more than than just what we were doing. Maybe a little bit more pointers and a little bit more direction so that we can improve our practice and and serve our our community a little bit better. So thank you That's so exactly. much. Thanks, Thank Corey. You. Thank you. I, I've uh, I followed you on Twitter. I hope that the we all hope that there'll be a way at least to stay in some kind of contact. That would be very cool. We certainly appreciate you taking interest in us. Yeah. Thanks, Corey. Thank That's you. no problem. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intersection Education Podcast. Before you go, I'd like to recognize that the land where this interview took place is a sacred place that has a long history of human existence. This land has helped people like the Cree. Salto, Nisitapi or Blackfoot, Métis, and Nakota Sioux live well for thousands of years. Let us continue to live well and respect this land.